Sometimes a rabbi or a clergy person will remember a pastoral visit. In this case, this memory has lasted for decades, and I had forgotten that I had remembered this. And then something happened that made that memory come alive. Let me bring you back to the very beginning of my rabbinical career. I started my rabbinate in 1981. I was the assistant rabbi of a large urban congregation in Miami, Florida. And I received word that there was a patient in a local hospital that I had to visit. Now, here's what you need to understand about the pecking order of rabbis in large congregations. At least in my experience, if there was someone who was important, someone who was well-connected within the community, someone who was generous, that was not the person who I got to visit. The senior rabbi took care of that. But I don't know, maybe he was out of town, maybe he was busy. In any case, it was my job to go visit Eli Timoner. Eli Timoner was an important man, and he was a successful man. Back in 1972, he launched Air Florida, which became the fastest growing airline in the world. Eli Timoner was a pillar of the Miami community. He raised millions of dollars for the Greater Miami Jewish Federation. You could see him in photographs with Israeli prime ministers, with princes, senators, including a man who was then senator and now president, Joe Biden. He was interviewed on Good Morning America. Oh, he was in great shape. He was a man of great physical vitality. He was a long-distance runner. He was a tennis player. And then it crashed, literally. Eli Timoner was 53 years old. He collapsed in the shower. He had a massive stroke, and it permanently paralyzed the left side of his body. And that was the man I went to visit. And we made eye contact, and I spoke to him, and his eyes sparkled. And I've known Rabbi Rachel Timoner, who is our guest today, for many years, and I should have made the connection. I mean, after all, how common a surname is Timoner. We'll get to that. This is Eli Timoner's story, and it's the story of Rabbi Rachel Timoner and her sister, the filmmaker Andi Timoner, and her entire family. This is the story of a decision that was momentous and existential, and it's the story of a film that's the story of a life. So welcome. Here we are. This is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred from the Religion News Service. And I am your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. Our guest, as I announced and as I promised one of the most important rabbis in our movement. And I'm not just saying that to flatter her. Rabbi Rachel Timoner is the senior rabbi of the congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is one of the most significant and vibrant synagogues in New York City. It's a synagogue that I've known for my entire career, and I've seen what's happened in the neighborhood and in the synagogue itself. Rabbi Timoner is here to tell the story of her father, Eli Timoner, 
and to tell the story of the movie, Last Flight Home, which her sister, Andi Timoner, directed. Last Flight Home is a documentary. It tells the story of Eli Timoner's decision that it was time for him to end his life. It is a very intimate portrait. It's a window into the last few weeks of Eli Timoner's life. As he carried out his wishes with his family's love and support, his wife Lisa, their children Rachel, Andy, and David, Andy's camera recorded the scenes as the family and friends gathered around Eli, and he was alert, although debilitated, in a hospital bed that was set up in the living room of his home. The Telluride Film Festival describes the documentary as an emotionally devastating film in which every tear is a prism of joy. I love that. Every tear, a prism of joy. And Variety said that the film is a tribute, a grappling with mortality, an exercise in self-surveillance, a messy home movie, a brief account of aviation history and a lesson in letting go and grief. All of that in one podcast. All of that in one movie. All of that... In one, what I think will be a soul-opening conversation with my colleague, Rabbi Rachel Timoner. Rabbi Timoner, welcome. Rabbi Salkin, thank you so much for having me and being in this conversation with me. Thank you. So let's just talk biography here. So I showed up in Miami, summer of 1981. I had longer hair. I, I had a beard. I was a little bit taller. Miami was very different. We didn't know each other then, did we? No, I, no, we didn't. I was, you know, little, you know, a, a young child when I, I left Miami when I was sixteen. So I was never there as an adult, and was far from being your colleague at that point. But you were not quite a kid either. Well, when my dad had his stroke, I was eleven. Wow. And um, and it changed our lives that moment. And you didn't mention, you, you told this so far, you've, you told the story so beautifully and thank you. But um, there's an important detail, which is that he was in such good shape. And that day um, he went to get a massage and the masseuse cracked his neck. Oh my God. And that is why he had a stroke. And that happens. It's very rare, but it happens. He was, he was not a candidate for a stroke. Very low blood pressure, very... Um, low cholesterol. Like it, they couldn't understand that in the hospital what had happened to him because he did not meet any of the, you know, any of the factors that would be considered a, a stroke. Um, and, but it was a stroke. It was an accident. O M friggin G. Oh my God. So tell us about your father before this happened. Well, one of the things that's been amazing about this film is that everyone, all these people, have gotten to know my dad. It's gotten such wide coverage and um, had so many viewers. And it's been such a blessing to have people know him. What he was like um, when I was little was at, um, a lot of what you what you see in the film. He was very funny, very smart. and the, But the most important thing to say about him is that he was just incredibly loving. Um, and you see that in the film. Um, he um, was a go-getter. He didn't sit down much or sleep much. He was off starting this airline, and before that, he'd started other businesses. Um, he was a risk taker. Um, he really cared about respecting other human beings and conveyed that to us in so many different ways. Um, he also really cared about uh, justice, and he was not an activist. It, it would not be correct to call him an activist in any way. He was a businessman. But when he encountered things that were not right in the world, he 
did something about it, um, including integrating a union. Um, we were in, you know, we were in the South and it, w- it had been, it was not, my life was not that much after segregation and the union, his union had been segregated and he saw, it was just like, that did not make any sense to him. And he integrated the union. It was one of the first integrated unions in the, in, in the um, sector that he was in at that time, um, including his airline was really kind of renowned for the way that uh, the employees of Air Florida were respected and uh, treated well and paid well and had good benefits and were um, like one of the things he did that I always remembered from childhood was that he believed that everyone needed to respect each other's jobs. And so he'd have it one day in the year where people did each other's jobs. And so like he would be at the reception desk or, you know, um, he, he would just make sure that people were seeing what it was like to be someone else in someone else's shoes, that kind of thing. Um, he would, when we would fly on Air Florida, he would get up and help serve the food, you know, like that kind of thing. Wow. My gosh. Yeah, he was that he was that kind of person. He just wanted his he wanted the people on his team to feel like he saw them, that they mattered, that he respected them. Have you ever heard of anything like this before in American corporate life where people like really take time to see the business through the eyes of people who normally would not have their voices heard? I I do, I don't know that much I don't, I don't, I've never seen anything like it. It's not a field that I've studied and I, I'm not involved in corporate life, but I, I grew up feeling so proud of that aspect of who he was and that example that, um, that I was immersed in. Um, like his, the employees of Air Florida, the, the company went out of business soon after, after his stroke, but the, but the, the employees have had an annual reunion every year. They still meet every year. They, I mean, it's been, what, uh, 40 years? Um, and they still, they still meet. Um, so that's, you just don't, you just don't see that. So he has this stroke. Tell me what happens. Tell me how this affects your family, how this affects you. I'm also really curious about you and figuring out to what extent, if any, this might've had an impact in your decision on your decision to become a rabbi. I can't, I, I, it definitely had an, an impact though. I didn't know it at the time. Um, so we were this, you know, happy family, uh, and, and everything was going so well in our lives. And one day, uh, the, we, the kids were at summer camp. We came home from summer camp to learn that our dad was still in the hospital. He'd, his stroke had happened, um, two months before, or six weeks before something like that, but he was still in the hospital. And we went to see him. We came, landed at the airport and went directly to the hospital to see him, find, learning in the car that where we were going and why. Um, and it was shocking. And he was, he was paralyzed. And uh, for the rest of our lives, he was paralyzed in his life. Um, what started to happen was an unraveling, really. Um, he, his company, Air Florida, which he had founded, um, he had... He had invited every member of the board onto the board. He was the CEO and president. Um, They started to take action out of fear that his disabled status would harm the company. And they um, transferred power to a president he had hired just before um, he had been president and CEO, and he hired someone to be number two. And they started to give that person more control. And then they moved toward asking him to resign. 
um, and they did ask him to resign. This is before the Americans with Disabilities Act. This is something that could not, I think, have happened now. Um, that was an incredible blow to his uh, life and his sense of self. And um, he built he built the entire thing, um, and he he did agree to step down. Um, and he also he was the largest single shareholder, and he was advised by many people to take his wealth out of the company. But he knew that he was he had a, he all the employees had stock sharing. And so he knew it would affect the, their value if he took his, his money out. And so he didn't. And then the person who had been the president who became, who took his place, ran the company into the ground. So he lost all of his wealth. And, um, you know, in my teen years, what was happening was we were in a kind of, in, in, a, in a crisis as a family. He was, he was trying to recover he was doing occupational therapy, physical therapy, um, not making much progress. Um, our finances were falling apart. Um, you know, over time, what would happen was that my parents ended up having to sell their house and and get go into a smaller place and then sell again and get into a smaller place. And you know, it, eventually, they really lost everything um, financially. Um, and. Um, I think the ways that that impacted us, it's really even hard to measure. It was, it was like there was a before and an after, and um, it's like, you know, everything came crashing down. So he's infirm. It's paralyzed. Can you open up for us a little bit about the decision that he made? How he made the decision? It's impact on all of you and how the story winds up being told the decision that the film is about so 40 years pass 40 years pass he he eventually you know eventually he and my mother um kind of settle in a different kind of you know way of life it's they have much fewer resources um but they're determined to make the most of life they they love us and you know we we he he expresses his love daily through phone calls and checking in with us and caring for us and everything else. 40 years pass. He's been, he's been paralyzed all this time. He's been unable to work. Um, and he, you know, he's been home and then, um, he starts, you know, he's aging and, um, he was 92 and he, um, he's was, had started having breathing difficulties. He was on oxygen. He, um, was becoming less and less mobile, less and less able to even just get to the bathroom, and um, eventually was hospitalized for r- really being unable to breathe. And he had b- both congestive heart failure and COPD, and we learned in the hospital that he was really never going to walk again. And when that happened, he decided that he it was time. Now, he'd had a bunch of health scares before. He'd been declining for a long time. He'd just been so determined that he was going to be there. He was going to be there for us. He was going to be there with us. And suddenly at this point, it, had been, it was enough. He was 92 years old. He had been paralyzed for 40 years. He learned he was never going to be able to be on his feet again. He didn't want to keep going. And he started from the hospital. It was also COVID at that time, so no one could visit him. And he started calling us on rotation saying, you have to help me die. I need to die. Please help me. Rachel, he would call, Rachel, please help me. You have to help me. Of course, no daughter wants to hear that. 
And yet I also was aware that he he'd fought for so many years. You know, he'd been he'd had some really bad luck in life and yet he never gave up and he always he was so tenacious and determined and loving and present and never complained and just like the best attitude and here he is pleading with me to help him end it and i didn't have any doubt in my mind that whatever he needed and wanted i wanted to help him now i did not know that it was legal to do that and i was never going to do something illegal of course but but I, I wished to be able to help him. I wished there was a way I could help him. And, and every day he would call I me mean, for days and days and days, every day calling me, pleading with me and saying things like he would say the Shema on the phone and say, look, I've said the Shema. I'm ready to go. Please help me. Um, and I would do things with him like guided visualizations, like imagining him slipping away from his body and like try, was trying to help him let go. But I did not think there was actually a practical thing I could do. And then my brother found out that the law in California allowed for medical aid in dying and that he could actually choose to end his life. And once he heard that, his desperation lifted. He he just became completely determined, like, okay, how do I see the doctor? How do I make it happen? How do I begin the timeline? What do I have to do? He never wavered. From the first time he said, I need to go, he never, ever said anything that was in any way different than that. Every single day, it was just about how much more time. How, when, can I, when, can I, when can it happen? What's the soonest it can happen? He wanted it. And we would, even once we had the timeline, he was like, can we do it today? It's like, no, daddy, can't do it today. It's still, it's, you've got two weeks. But he was determined. This was what he needed to do to end his life. He, he wanted the end of his life to be something that he had some agency in. Because for 40 years, he'd had basically no agency in anything. And that was, for me, incredibly important to see that, that the relief it gave him, the sense of self, the sense of, of some amount of power was so meaningful to his well-being as he was coming to the end of his life that I just wanted to support that. We're going to come back to that decision in a little bit, but just let me ask you a question. As a rabbi, had you encountered these sorts of situations in the past? I had not. The law in California happened. I was I was a rabbi in California, but the law right. happened after I left, after I moved to New York. So I never had that. I, now, I've had many congregants, and I'm sure you have too, who have suffered tremendously at the end of their lives, who have wished to die at the end of their lives. I had a congregant with ALS who asked me, how can I find out? How? What can I do? And we in New York do not have that right. New Jersey does, but you have to be a resident. You can't move to New Jersey to do it. So there was nothing that this dear congregant of mine could do. And he died of long, terrible death through ALS and I couldn't help him. And, and I've had other congregants who wished for this and who've suffered like extraordinarily at the end of their lives. And, um, I was already sensitive to, um, to being a person who would support something like this. It was not, this was not an idea that felt, wrong to me. I know it's, I know it's, um, complicated and there are a lot of things to pay attention to, to make sure that, um, that the person is not in any way being pressured. Um, and that's for the right reasons, but I have seen enough end of life suffering that I, I was sensitive to this already. How did Andy choose to make a movie about this? Well, so she's a filmmaker. She's made many films. Um, she's won Sundance twice. She's she's really an amazing filmmaker. And um, she also records us all the time. This is the thing about my sister. It's like we are being audio, audio recorded or video recorded 
all the time. Our, once Zoom was a thing, we were always being recorded. She would record family dinners. She would, she's just been like that. And so she said she wanted to put cameras up in his room when we knew he was going to be coming home for this two-week period toward the, to the end, to end his life. She wanted to put cameras up. I am never, I've always been the one person in the family the least open to this. I don't like being filmed. I don't, I like being present in the moment and not thinking about that. But everybody was good with it. My dad was good with it. Everybody was good with it. And the idea was that she was just recording it so that we would always remember dad and that we'd always remember these weeks. And I understood that. Um, she was not at that point making a movie and none of us thought we were in a movie. Um, it is possible my dad thought he was in a movie because he apparently said to her, I think you're on the right track. And she said, I don't know what track I'm on. And he seemed to, he seemed to, in retrospect, I think that he possibly knew that there was going to be a movie. I, I'm not sure, but, um, we did not know. And, but I didn't know there were going to be cameras in the room. And when I arrived, they, they were there. And one of the things that was, I think, really, really important, and, and my sister worked hard to make this happen, was that I, I insisted that the cameras in no way interfere with what we were doing. So I walked in, saw the cameras, and thought to myself, that is the last time I'm going to look at them. That's the last time I'm going to think about them. They're gone. I need to just completely focus on dad and on the family because what we're doing here is of the, there's nothing more important than what we're doing here, which is helping him to die in, in a way that um, surrounds him with love and um, as good a death as possible. What did you learn about your father in the process of this? He's very brave, like deep courage. Um, he... I think, looking back, I don't know. This is not substantiated in any way, but I think, I think that he might have wanted a film. Like I think that he was willing to give his death as something that could help other people. Mm. I think that he, I think that he might have thought this might this was a thing he could contribute. And he's he he was such a generous man in his life. He he gave away every like he gave away a very significant percentage of what he had when he had it, um, and it fits it, it tracks with who he was that he would think, you know he he had forty years where he really didn't have that much to give, and here was something he could give. Though I should say in those forty years he gave a lot of love, but this was something he could a way he could give his life, give his death, to help other people. And I think he thought there was a possibility of changing laws with this film. And, I th and that we are currently using it to try to change laws. How is that working out, and how are you doing that? Well, like in New York, uh, this question is uh, is up before the legislature. It has been for a number of years. The coalition, all these, all the coalitions working on this have encountered this film at this point, and um, they've been asking me as a, I mean, as a faith leader, which is a big deal in this on this issue, um, to speak and to screen the film. We screened it to the state legislature. Um, they're using my testimony uh, in part of the lobbying this spring. I'm meeting with particular legislators who are Jewish and are, have questions about the legislation. Um, so I'm starting in New York. Uh, my sister is right now working on an impact campaign to, to use the film in a lot of states to change the laws. Um, and the reform movement has moved quite a lot. I know you want to speak about that. The reform movement has moved quite a lot in the last year and a half on this question. And 
um, I don't know if there's any relationship between the film and what happened in terms of the new response. Um, but um, but it's it's quite a di- from the moment when he died, the reform movement absolutely banned what we did, and now the reform movement um, allows for it. We're going to talk about that. You know, it's interesting. Right before we take this break, your father is quoted as having said in several different contexts that he felt that he had served his sentence. Can you say more about that? I think that though my dad didn't complain and he, like we, he ne- we never heard him talk about how hard it was to live the way he lived. I think that quietly he suffered quite a lot. I think that he, he did not want to be disabled. He, he, he was not only unable to, you know, drive, walk any distance, work. He also couldn't read because he was blind in the left half of each eye. And the way that that works is your, it's too much to go into, but it, he couldn't read. And so he just, I think, felt really trapped by his limitations and really reduced like, like, like a prisoner. And yet he knew how much he mattered to us and he knew how much we mattered to him and he wanted to be there with us in life. And so I think when he was coming to the end, he felt like it had been, you know, he'd like done a good, he'd served his time. Like he'd, he'd, he'd lived with the best possible spirit for 40 years and that he shouldn't be asked to do more. I mean, he lived 92 years, but 40 years in a way that felt like a prison. You know what's going through my mind, Rabbi? Uh, I have a list of euphemisms that we Jews use for death. We speak of people who are ne'esaf el-amav, to be gathered to one's people, to shochev im avotav, to lie with one's fathers, with one's ancestors. But I think of your father's death and I think of that elegant Hebrew word for death, niftar, Mm. to be released from obligation. Mm, Beautiful. Beautiful. And even before we talk about the issues of Jewish law and what they have to do with this entire film, this life journey, etc., it's really my hope that by the time we're done with this podcast and by the time it gets out into the world, it would be such a blessing, I think, for you and me, your family, and your father's memory, if people would use this as a resource for making their own decision about what is, I think, the most delicate and the most existential decision that anyone could ever make. I'm hoping that this conversation will teach, touch, and will guide other people in figuring out what to do about that. Thank you. I hope so too. I, it's one, one of the extraordinary things about this film has been, we've been, I've been traveling around the country with it and there've been all these, you know, so many audiences and so many people. And it has, it definitely has felt like it's opened up this question for people. They, it has encouraged people to turn toward the questions around their own death in a way that um, it's an invitation into a conversation. Right. It's it's it, and and I, I, to the degree that this podcast reaches people who think they might want to see the film, or even just that allows them to think about, huh, what what do I want the end of my life to be like, including not to just the question of do I want to 
end my life, but the question of who do I want around my bed? What do I want to say to the people I love? What do I want to do in the you know last few weeks of my life in terms of making sure that the thing the values I have are passed on? Do I want an ethical will? Do I, you know there's so many good questions to be asking about how we leave the world, how we're how we're released from obligation. And um, I hope that this conversation helps people to turn toward, toward those questions. Here's an odd question because this just came up this week in a conversation with someone. Do you know where you're going to be buried? It's so interesting that you should ask that. So my dad is buried in L.A. Um, his family come from right here where I am. I'm, I, I came to home in some sense. He grew up in Brooklyn, uh, his young childhood. Um, and then he was in Woodmere, Long Island. But um, his parents are buried near here. And there's a family plot that has a, you know, name and a couple trees planted and a bench and whatever. And there's empty plots there. And so I am not, I am not sure whether, where to, I, I think I need to see a little more about what happens in my life and like which coast I'm on as I'm, if I, if I, if I live a full long life, um, I don't know whether it'll be in the plot here or near where my parents are in LA. It's so interesting because I had this conversation with someone just the other day and I'm 68 and my father lived to be 98. I've already surpassed my mother's life by three years, but all of a sudden this crazy, not so crazy question, where am I going to be when I die? Yeah. Who will visit me? These are, these are the questions that are, that are just so crucial. All right. We'll be right back. This is Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, from religionnews.com. I'm Rabbi Jeff Salkin. I am the rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida, and we are hanging out virtually today with my colleague, Rabbi Rachel Timoner, who's the senior rabbi of Congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope, Brooklyn. She is the daughter of uh, the late lamented Eli Timoner whose life and departure from this life is the subject of the movie Last Flight Home, which was made by Rachel's sister, Andi Timoner, and it's gotten extraordinary reviews. How is it done in, in that world, Rachel? It's interesting. I, I didn't know that even though my sister's a filmmaker, I was never really immersed in the film world, and this year I have been. Um, it got a lot of attention at a, at a number of festivals, um, Telluride, um, Sundance and won awards at a few different festivals. Um, and then it also was shortlisted for an Oscar. Um, and it, uh, that, that's a big honor in the documentary in any world, I think, and part of the film world. Um, and just the, the things that people say when they watch it, it, it really is life-changing for people. Just extraordinary responses everywhere. Um, st- some of the reviews, as you say, like have just been so, so powerful and moving. I, I, it's been amazing to see. And, and for me, I mean, it's very intimate film about our family, as you, as you know, as you've seen it. Like, it's so personal. And I, it, there's a way of feeling kind of like this ex- exposure, you know, it's like very personal. 
Um, and so in, in that sense, it, it feels a bit risky to have it out there in the world. And yet it's also so gratifying to have people respond to it with so much love. And it's that rare animal in the cinematic or entertainment world, which is not only something that quote unquote entertains, interesting verb, but I really think it's the sort of thing that can help people. I, 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 that's definitely been my experience. I, I can't, I, I can't tell you the number of people who've come up to me with tears in their eyes saying, I expected this to be a sad film, but it's actually uplifting and it makes me less afraid to die. It makes me less afraid of the death of my loved ones. It makes me want to think about how to prepare for the death of my loved ones. And it makes me want to be conscious about dying and, you know, consider how can I have the most loving death and also the most loving life. You know, the end of the film is a sermon that I give on Yom Kippur and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in real time making meaning of my father's death, which would have been that year. And, and I talk about how, like, I think the lesson of his life and his death and the film, which at that point didn't exist, was, is about life being measured not by financial success, Right, because my dad felt like a failure. This is what we haven't talked about this, but he felt like a failure in his life because of his financial, because he had he'd gone from having a lot of wealth to not having any, and he felt like he didn't provide for us in in the way that he wanted to, and that was like his big kind of confession at the end of his life was that he felt like he'd failed us, and he failed in life financially, and he shifted to be able to see actually he hadn't failed at all like that was the wrong measure of his life that was not the correct way to measure a life and the correct way to measure a life is 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 love and that by that measure he had like he'd loved so beautifully and thoroughly and all encompassingly and um we we all grew up and lived bathed in his love and it and it shaped all of us and and not just us but big circles of people you know, we were talking before about the employees of Air Florida and like big circles of people. And so um, I think that that is really helpful to people to see, you know, to like really think about their own lives. Like what what ultimately does matter in my life? Well, how do I want to measure my life? When I'm at the end of my life and I look back, what do I want it to have been about? You know, it's fascinating you say this because on the High Holy Days, I gave a sermon about something that I saw on the wall of a synagogue in Poland. There was an inscription that said, I won't give it to you in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is quite elegant and it rhymes. It says, people worry about the loss of their money, but they don't worry about the loss of their days. Your money won't help and your days are not coming back. That's right. I mean, that's, that's it. That's it. Our, we are confused about what matters. And we're culturally also, confused, right? Our culture yeah, confuses yeah, us, right? Our culture, American culture among them, all is probably the most confused in this regard. We really think that we, 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 have, we have things backwards. So let's and, talk Jewish. Let's talk okay. Jewish about this. So this movie and the research for this conversation propelled me on a miniature journey into thinking about this issue. I tend to be kind of a centrist within the reform movement, which is to say that I, I tend to view traditional solutions to traditional problems, wherein the default is, I think they got it right. And then sometimes I have to dissent from that. And, and I've moved considerably in my career on a lot of these key, what you and I would call cultural issues in very big ways, 
anyone who knows me well will say, yeah, Jeff Salkin's really changed on a lot of stuff. This was not one that was on my list of things to journey on. And then I just started reading our response to literature, our literature in which people ask rabbis and authorities, what's the right thing to do in a particular case? And I was prepared to find this problematic, this decision about assisted suicide to be problematic. And then I, I, read, I read our latest opinion and I was startled by the poetry of it. So you want, let's just, can we study this together? Let's walk, yeah. let's walk each other down this path. Yeah, I agree that I think this latest responsum is so beautifully done. It is, it is deeply thoughtful. It is so well-researched and it is poetic and um, it is humane. It is humane. So the traditional halacha, the traditional Jewish law on this is that we don't do anything to hasten the death of someone who is dying. That is right. On the other hand, you can remove obstacles That's right. that are keeping people from death. That's right. That's right. So the story of Yehud Hanasi, who was the leader of the Sanhedrin in Mishnaic times, um, was that he was dying and his maid servant, his 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 um, assistant, you know, in his in his home, um, was um, deeply disturbed by his suffering at his end end of life, and his uh, the other rabbis were praying con- constantly that he for his life, and it was preventing him from dying, and she drops a vessel, breaks a vessel, makes a loud sound, that stops them from praying for a second. And then he dies. And that would be, that's the kind of rabbinic story that, that is what you just described, which is like, they were the obstacle. He would have been dying. They were the obstacle. She dropped the vessel. It stopped the obstacle. He died. You're allowed to do that. Got it. Do you make anything of the fact, and maybe this is just me projecting a kind of, uh, I don't want to say pseudo-feminism, but I think there may be a feminist reading this. Do you make anything of the fact that it's a maidservant who does this? Hmm. I have not thought about that. I think I think that sometimes you. I guess I haven't even I haven't thought about it explicitly, but I think in a, in a more subtle way, I've I've feel that um, sometimes it is the the nameless um, the, the the ones in service who actually see best and know I, best. I so agree. Yeah. I so agree with that. And here's something else that's really interesting because I'm free associating to loud noises that are made when things break. Mm, mm, And so I'm mm. going from like the wedding, Mm, mm. the breaking of the glass to Mm -hmm. the breaking of this vessel, Mm. which releases him to be able to die. Mm. Mm. I love that. And actually, when you just said the breaking of the vessel, it made me think, oh my gosh, do we want to free associate all the way to Luriana Kabbalah? I don't know. Um, with the breaking of the vessels that created the world. Why not? But, um, but, I would. Uh, but the idea that, that there's breakage happening in when one transitions from life to death or, you know, from, from when something's created and when something ends, there's there's some breakage that's happening. And, and, it's, and I actually think, just to quickly connected to the film and my dad's death, is that there was a way that I think we thought, oh, well, he can take this, these drugs and it will end his life. 
and it will be less suffering than whatever would have happened long term. And I, I think it was less suffering than whatever would have happened long term. But the taking of the drugs was not without its own suffering. And there is some breakage that happened, not breakage, but there is some 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 suffering there at the end. And I think I think to expect to come into the world or to leave the world without any kind of pain or suffering is unrealistic. <laughs> and the fact that there's like a broken vessel, yes, that's like symbolic of like there's rupture. There's rupture. I absolutely agree with you. And there's something else that happens in this particular legal text that our movement has created, that our colleagues have created. And there's something very subtle that goes on here. Normally when Jews deal with a legal issue, an issue of halacha, an issue of Jewish law, we stick to the legal texts. We stay in our lane. Yep. And what's fascinating about this, and I do think there's precedent for this, is that when you tell that story, that agadah, that piece of lore about the death of this great rabbinic leader, it brings in not only a legal text, but it brings in narrative and story. Yep. Yep. And I, I saw in this response, and one of the things I really appreciated about it is that they were actually drawing more broadly from sources, including narrative and including also what has been learned from the hospice movement, for example, um, which I thought some of that material was really important. The difference that hospice those who've, who've designed hospice care and learned from it over decades talk about the difference between living and existing and that mm-hmm. there's, a, there's something about quality of life that matters and that a person uh, – and quality of life is not only things that we would measure in terms of physical pain, but it's also psychic pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain – and that one can be at a point where they have so much of that pain that they're not actually living anymore. They're existing. Their body is still alive, but they're not living in that they're not able to appreciate or enjoy any aspect of being alive. Um, um, and I, and you know, I said that I paraphrased dramatically from whatever was written there, but it, that's, that's the way that I understood it. Um, and they also bring from, like, for example, Soloveitchik talking about not talking about this this issue, just talking more broadly that law, law without tenderness, is wickedness. I absolutely, I absolutely resonate with that. And just to footnote this, everybody, uh, Rabbi Timoner is referring to Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, the, probably the greatest authority, not necessarily a legal authority, but the greatest philosophical authority of modern orthodoxy. Yes. And I, I love that they did that. And I also love that, well, first of all, what hadn't happened in the past, we just talked about that, was the integration of story and law. Yes. But what also hadn't happened in the past, and maybe this is the flip side of the whole abortion question, which also rests on the issue of bodily autonomy, but what hasn't happened in the past, and I've always felt this in terms of the stuff about death and dying, is that these legal texts, Rabbi Timoner, were written in the 1500s and 1600s at a time when we did not have the technology that we have now, at a time when death happened in a much more rapid way, at a time when we had no conception of what Dame Cicely Saunders in 1967 referred to, and you alluded to this, as total pain. That's right. 
That's right. And so I'm wondering to what extent do, do our traditional cousins rely on what medical science now knows about these things? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that that piece about that the law is based on a different kind of death. The law is based on a time when death, the, the response draws upon some Talmudic texts and other rabbinic texts that talk about that, you know, the average death was something, I'm forgetting what it says, I think it's like four days or five days, that a death longer than seven days is considered a death of suffering. Like yes. They were not used to people who were languishing for six months, for nine months, for two years. They're, they did not have that. And we are applying laws that are about one set of conditions to a different set of conditions. And ought we not reconsider the law based on the conditions. That's the case that they're making in that response. I and mean, I think I think it's it's very compelling. I'm hoping that people who ultimately listen to this podcast and people who read uh, the blog, which will be about this podcast, will use this as a tool for their own introspection. And I think it deserves, and I think the movie deserves to be seen as a text that families can engage in order to make some really important decisions. And more than that, I'm also hoping that our more traditional brothers and sisters and cousins and friends, without proselytizing about where I think halacha should go in this particular matter, I'm hoping that they understand that Jewish law and Judaism has far more voices than we've given it credit for. Mm. Mm. The text that didn't make it into the codes, you're saying, as, as sources for the codes. Is that what you're saying? I think so. See, here's my deal. If you and I are talking about American life and what should be true in America today, you and I are probably going to talk about the Constitution, but we're also going to talk about the Declaration of Independence, and we're going to talk about legend and lore, the stories we tell ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yep. so how can you block the stories that we tell ourselves out of this conversation and come up with something approaching a holistic Judaism? Mm-hmm. That's what you and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. It's really going to be up to you to forge this next path. I, I just giving you that responsibility, I think. <laughs> Me personally? <laughs> yes. You, Rachel Timoner of Brooklyn, New York, you're going to have to do this. I think. Great. Okay. No problem. Um, but I will say that when I would like to add to the stories that we're collecting about this, that when I, when I realized that the film was going to come out, I wrote, a, I wrote a piece in the foreword because I thought, I frankly thought people were going to attack me. Um, you know, it was against, it was against, at that point, reform, uh, we don't have halakha, but, you know, reform responsa. It was against every movement of Judaism, and I'm on film being part of it, and I'm a rabbi, and I thought, okay, I need to write something, and I wrote a piece in the foreword about what I did and why I did it and what my father did and why he did it, and saying at the end, I think it's time for us to re- to talk about this question. I think we might want to reconsider, as, as the Jewish people, what our position is on this. And then I kind of ducked and covered, <laughs> okay, what's going to happen? And... I got hundreds of letters, and none of them, not one, was negative. Almost all of them were people telling me about their loved one who either wished they could have done this, did this illegally, 
um, suffered terribly and, and the, the, the living loved one is reconsidering now what they think about Jewish law. I heard from rabbis who said, this is confidential, please don't tell my, use my name, but I'm an Orthodox rabbi, I am a conservative rabbi, and I really think that the law is wrong. Um, I couldn't believe how, what an outpouring, and mostly from lived experience, from like, this is not humane. Our law is not humane. Your family's experience became the laboratory in which this law was tested and found wanting. So let's talk theology as we move towards the end of our time together. Olam haba, heaven, the world to come. Let's talk about that. Well, one thing that I would say in terms of what does God want of us, I do, I'm, I'm also, I, 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 t- I tend to find a lot of meaning and tradition and think that I'm not smarter than the people for thousands of years, the brilliant people of our, you know, of our ancestors who thought deeply about things. Um, and, and so I, I, I tend to think about, well, you know, I, I, I do believe that, that our, our bodies are, are blessings from God. They're, they're, you know, in some sense, perfect. They're, intricate and awesome and extraordinary and amazing. And, um, and it's not up to us to take them out of the world and that, um, but I also think that we have medicine and medicine in a hundred ways keeps us alive longer than we would. And, um, like my father was on oxygen. He was on like eight or 10 prescriptions that he would not, he would not be, have been alive anywhere near as long as he was without lots of medical intervention. Do I think that God does not want us to practice medicine? Do I think that God does not want us to help people live longer and support them to relieve their pain and suffering? And all that? I, I, I absolutely believe that we, human beings are create, creations of God. Our, our ingenuity is, comes from God. All of it comes from God. And so our ability to keep people alive comes from God. And our also, and that along with that, our ability to also say at the end of a life when a person is terminally ill and is saying, "I am suffering too much. I need to stop this now." Equally, our ability to do that comes from God. And so, when I think about you know ideas about you know God drawing in all the souls after we die, and you know El Malay Rachamim and the idea of a soul being held under God's wings, and you know what is Olam Haba and I. I I think that um, all of this, all of these questions belong to God as well as they belong to us. And I um, do not think of this as in the way that our tradition would think about suicide as a person like throwing away their life, um, which, by the way, I also think that people who commit suicide are taken under God's wings, I want to say. But I think, but I think that this is, this is about a person who is terminally ill at the end of their life, not disrespecting their body, not disrespecting the gift of life they've been given, but saying, this has been a fully lived good life. I am grateful for it. I've been kept alive by human means, and I'm ready to use human means to stop that. And I think that God, I, I honestly, I, 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 who knows, but I can't. I, I can't imagine God doing anything but smiling upon that, and and or or crying with us, or wanting to embrace us. Because in a few weeks at the Seder, when we observe Pesach, Passover, 
we say this word in a different context, but it echoes within my soul. Dayenu. Yeah. It's enough. Yeah. There's a time to die. I think I, I think that's right. I, we're not meant to live forever, and we have extended life extraordinarily, and and often for tremendous blessing. But sometimes we extend life in a way that's not for blessing, and to be able to name that and know it, and and allow the person themselves to say, "This has been too much. I'm done." I'm done. Um, yeah, I, I I I agree, and I, I think there is a point where it's to be say, "Dayinu." And I think also that one thing is that my father, he didn't, he didn't have a strong God belief and he didn't really have a, a soul belief until the end of his life. And then he very, very strongly was certain that he had an eternal soul and that it was going to live on and that he was going to be with his family and that he was going to be able to watch us and, 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 and send a protective shield around us and be with us in a different kind of way. He was certain of it. And I think it's because as he got closer to death, he had um, he had a feeling of contact with his parents, you know, and I think he, he realized that. And I very much believe that that is true about us. And um, it was a beautiful thing for me to see my father wanting to stay connected past death and believing that he would. I share that certainty. I note that March 3rd was your father's first yard site. It was, it was, it was, this one was his second yard site, but yes. Well, let's just, re, let's rewind that a second. Okay. Okay. So March 3rd would have been his second yard site. That's right. Well, his memory is a blessing then. Thank you. His memory is a blessing. This has been Rabbi Jeff Salkin of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach. This has been Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred, and our friend Rabbi Rachel Timoner has shaken us, she has stirred us, but I also think in large measure she has given us many, many measures of comfort and meaning. So Rabbi Timoner, thank you. Thank you so much. Rabbi Salkin, thank you so much for having me in this conversation. You've been so emotionally generous uh, and generous with your time. And so I invite everybody, please, 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 please follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. And the producer is Jay Woodward, and our engineer for this podcast was Elizabeth Windham. We get production assistance from Lance Roger Axt. Elsie Owen keeps the engine running smoothly. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. And I want to tell you, everybody, you need to know this. Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is now available on Spotify, on Google, on Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. And you would help us if you would download our podcast, leave us a five-star rating, tell everyone about us. Many thanks. We'll see you again soon, everyone. Shalom. Bye.